who refuse to play when their companions are bidding them to do so. Verse 17, and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. When called to play the role of dancing for some sort of celebratory event, perhaps such as a a wedding, they are unresponsive. When called to role play the part of those at a funeral, lamenting and mourning, I don't know why children want to play funeral, but you know, whatever. Uh, But when they're called to role play the part of the funeral, likewise, they are unresponsive. They refuse to respond to the flute by dancing, and they refuse to respond to the sound of mourning by lamenting. Well, the illustration here pictures this generation as being passive, indifferent, and unresponsive. By the way, all you have to do to go to hell is nothing. Nothing. And one is especially responsible when the evidence is strongly presented. Billy Sunday was right when he said, a man can slip into hell with his hand on the doorknob of heaven. And that's what you have here. The Messiah is so close. He's right in their presence. It's been said you can miss heaven by 12 inches. You know, you can have the head knowledge and yet it's not in your heart, figuratively speaking. The heart, you know, is a spiritual reality where you make decisions, your commitment, the will. Hebrews says this, Hebrews 2, 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? All you have to do is neglect it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? All you have to do is neglect it, to passively not respond, to be unresponsive, It's interesting to me, Jesus' emphasis in John chapter 3 in terms of why people go to hell. Say, well, they go to hell because all the bad things they're doing. That's not the emphasis that Jesus makes in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why the condemnation? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the ultimate issue before God. What are we going to do with Jesus Christ? And then Jesus further explains what exactly he is illustrating as seen in the following verses. Verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. John the Baptist came with really kind of an austere type of ministry, living ascetically. And for a season, the people rejoiced in his light, as brought out in John 5.35. However, evidently, when John was taken off to prison, the people began to say very negative things about him. They were saying things like, he's just a crazy man, demon-possessed, man shouting in the wilderness, this isn't normal. That guy, he had problems, demon problems. That's what they came to say about John. And it's interesting how Jesus says in John 5, 35, for a season they rejoiced in his light. I mean, for a while, John was all popular. The masses came out to see him. But it shows you how fickle people can be. Uh, And they can be brutal when you're down. Now that he's in prison, it's like, boy, this is not the powerful man of God we expect as, you know, uh, introducing the Messiah. 
It doesn't appear that this defamation of John's character took place until after his arrest and imprisonment. Yeah, let's pile on him now. In this context, these phony supporters who are very fickle and very seasonal, they really brought out what they thought about him, saying he has a demon. You know, you know what that is? That is a total rejection of John and his entire ministry. They did not see him as a man of God who was introducing the Messiah, but rather as Satan's man, doing Satan's work. On the other hand, Jesus had a completely different kind of ministry than John the Baptist. And they didn't respond to him properly either. Verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says, but wisdom is justified by her children. In contrast to the ascetic type ministry of John the Baptist, Jesus came eating and drinking. It's like John came to fast, which kind of goes with the spirit of repentance. And Jesus came to party. And they didn't appreciate either ministry. They accused Jesus of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. Yeah, there is. He's drinking some wine. We all know that'll send you to hell. We all know only wicked people do that. You know, that's, that's where the legalistic mentality was at a little bit. Uh, a glutton, he, he, there he is. He's eating all the time, goes to the parties, goes to the banquets. And he's a friend of tax collectors. And every Jew knew that was terrible. Tax collectors. I mean, if you know anybody from the IRS, you know you do not keep company with those kind of people. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Jesus was accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. A friend... Okay, you're known by the friends you keep, right? Your associations. Look, this tells a story about Jesus. That's what they're saying about Jesus. Very nasty about John the Baptist. He's got a demon. And Jesus, you know, look at the sinful lifestyle, gluttonous, drinking wine all the time. And the company he keeps, it's terrible. That's their analysis. There was no pleasing this generation. They didn't like the austere ministry of John, and they didn't like the celebratory ministry of the Son of Man either. No pleasing the spirit of unbelief. It is consistently critical. A critical spirit of unbelief defines rebellion. Not only were they unresponsive, but they were blasphemously critical about it. They claimed John had a demon. Jesus was carrying on with a sinful party lifestyle, with the proof being his sinful associations with tax collectors and sinners. Note here, by way of footnote, note that title, Son of Man, is a messianic designation based on the Old Testament reference in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So clearly, he is describing himself in relationship to being the Messiah when he says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. But then he says, in a proverbial way, in response to this, Jesus gave this proverbial saying, but wisdom is justified by her children. Now, some manuscripts have here, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. However, in the parallel text of Luke 7.35, it also says children. Luke 7.35, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, whether understood as deeds or children, the concept is basically the same, referring to what is produced. The wisdom of God, as seen in both the ministry of John, 
and that of Jesus would be proven true. You see, the idea of wisdom being justified means it's validated or vindicated or proven right. In the end, the wisdom of God will be seen in both the ministry of John the Baptist and that of Christ in several ways. It would be shown in that they both would accomplish the objective of God. They both had a part in the fulfillment of prophecy. It would be seen in the fruit of true converts who serve as a vindication of the wisdom of their ministries. Although the ministry of John and that of Jesus were very different, yet in the wisdom of God, they both had a very specific role in fulfilling the all-wise plan of God. Thus, they complemented each other perfectly. Now, fittingly, John the Baptist's ministry was in keeping with the call to repentance, uh, characterized by a lamenting that is in keeping with repentance. And fittingly, Christ's ministry was in keeping with him as the Messiah offering the good news of the kingdom, characterized by a celebration atmosphere, feasting. It all fits perfectly together in keeping with God's wisdom. And wisdom bears fruit, the fruit of true followers. William McDonald says this, The Lord Jesus, of course, is wisdom personified. Though unbelieving men might slander him, he is vindicated in his works and in the lives of his followers. I think that's the key idea here. He is vindicated in the works and in the lives of his followers. Though the mass of the Jews might refuse to acknowledge him as the Messiah King, his claims were completely verified by his miracles and by the spiritual transformation of his devoted disciples. And by deduction the blasphemous response of the majority of this generation is shown to be a complete lack of true wisdom. Indeed, it was pure folly. So, verse 20, this is the background leading us now to verse 20. Verse 20, then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works have been done. Why? Because they did not repent. This verse marks a major shift in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Recall the two bookends summarizing Christ's Galilean ministry where most of his mighty works took place in Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35. Remember these bookends? We've talked about them in the past. But Matthew 4.23, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Jesus was, was offering the kingdom and providing proof that he was the messianic king who brings in the kingdom by doing kingdom miracles. Matthew 9, 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities, villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. That's what the kingdom is all about. Everybody gets healed in the kingdom. Not just spotty here, spotty there. No, Jesus, when he came, he healed everybody on the scene. That was evidence that the kingdom is being offered and that he is the Messiah. Well, this is descriptive of Christ's presentation of himself and his kingdom offered to the nation. <clears throat> now, most of these mighty miracles, as I say took place in the region of Galilee, which Christ is now going to severely rebuke 
because of their blasphemous indifference. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, those who really wish to know their Bibles, which would be all of you here this morning, I'm quite sure. Uh, those who really wish to know their Bibles should see that we are in new country from this verse forward, so to speak. Draw a thick black line between the 19th and the 20th verses. There is a great divide here. So you need to understand, we're, we're seeing a, a seismic shift here in the ministry of Christ and in the narrative as it's unfolding in the book of Matthew. From this point on, a new aspect of Christ's ministry is being introduced. Prior to this time, there was a lot of miraculous activity, evidence being put forth, and space was given for the people to repent and to respond to the truth of Christ as the Messiah and his kingdom message. But now the tone has changed. He now begins to pronounce judgment on this generation, the people of his day, because they refused to repent. He goes from preaching and presenting the evidence to rebuking and condemning the people for not accepting it. Note the language here. Then he began to rebuke. This marks a change. This is the beginning of a whole new direction in his ministry. The idea of rebuke means to deliver a denunciation. And in particular, he is aiming his rebuke at those cities in which most of his mighty works have been done. They had the most evidence and therefore were the most accountable. They had seen the truth most clearly. Now, that word mighty is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. It refers to the idea of might, power, or strength. These were powerful miracles, kingdom miracles that were irrefutable. By the way, even Jesus' worst critics never denied that he was doing these miracles. They simply ascribed them to Satan. They never said it's not real. These were kingdom miracles referred to here as mighty works. Power characterized them as Christ did what no one else ever did in terms of scope in terms of uniqueness. Christ evidenced total power over the demonic realm, total power, over the realm of disease and over the realm of nature. In every realm, his power was shown to be total. I mean, there was nothing that Christ couldn't do. This was powerful evidence that Jesus was no ordinary person. He was the God-man. He was the prophesied human Messiah. Unto us a son is given, right? Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called Mighty God. In one person. He's that person. He is the God King that the Messiah would be as seen in the power displayed in performing these miracles. And note again the problem here. In spite of all this powerful evidence, yet the people refused to Repent. Might have said they, the problem was they refused to believe. Well, that's true. And you can look at a lot of texts that say that very thing. But the emphasis here is they refuse to repent. And in truth, repentance and belief are like two sides of the same coin of conversion. They refused to repent. This was the response that God was demanding 
And he still demands it. God now uh, commands all men everywhere to repent. He has appointed a day in which he would judge the world. Acts 17, 30, 31. This response of repentance is what God demands. The response of repentance is what John the Baptist called for, right? He said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus, taking the baton from John, as it were, started his ministry with that same emphasis. The people, to a point, took an interest in Jesus' ministry. I mean, they loved the free food, right? Free breakfast is nice, let's face it. Fed the 5,000. They wanted to make him king because he fed everybody. This is wonderful. We think you make a nice king. We like free breakfast. Not to mention dinner. We like it. But their hearts remained unchanged. And therefore, their lives were ultimately unchanged. You see, accepting Jesus is not just merely what I, doing this for what I can get out of it. My, you know, enhancing my life here and now. It may or may not do that, but the ultimate thing is accepting Jesus for who he is, and the issue is ultimately eternal life. As Jesus said, people are ultimately known by their fruits, and the fruits generally of Israel were not good. Now, there were some exceptions, yes, but generally. The word repent literally means to change your mind. That's what repentance means, to have a change of mind. It means to think differently where we admit that we are wrong and align our thinking with God's truth. As I say, no repentance, no true faith. It's one of the great errors of the evangelical church in the last 50 years. <laughs> this easy believism that says, you know, you can, you can have Christ as a Savior, but it doesn't really have to affect your life. I don't see that anywhere in the ministry of Jesus. I don't see it anywhere in the New Testament, honestly. Repentance is saying, God, you're right, and I'm wrong in my thinking, and therefore I change my thinking. Repentance realigns are thinking with God's truth, his truth about Jesus, who he is as Lord and Savior. That's the nature of a saving faith. You truly change your mind about who he is, and that affects how you respond to his teaching and how you live. Well, Christ was calling on the nation to acknowledge him as the prophesied Messiah and to align with his kingdom teaching. His kingdom ethics is brought out in the Sermon on the Mount. This would require a change of mind concerning their legalistic ways, steeped in rabbinic tradition and dead formalism. Christ was really saying, it's not about your dead religion, but rather it's about me. It's about me. Because I am the Messiah. Turn your back on your legalistic religion and come and follow me. And this is why, by the way, the religious leaders hated Jesus. Nobody hated Jesus more than the religious leaders. You know why? They got it that Jesus was calling for repentance that forsakes the legalism of Judaism and now turns to follow him as Lord and Savior. Jesus made it all about him and the religious establishment had a problem with that. They are diametrically opposed. And this is the point of the parable showing that new wine must be put into new wineskins. A complete change of mind was required, which is called repentance. And uh, when you work it through, repentance jettisons the old form of religion. You know, Paul was a very religious man. I love his testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He says, whatever things were gained to me, and he lists all of his religious qualifications, his background, his heritage, and all that stuff. He says, 
whatever things were gained, I counted loss that I might gain Christ and be found in him, having the righteousness which is of faith. Most of Israel was not ready to do this. It was a lordship issue. And most of Israel was still under the lordship, if you will, the lordship of the religious legalism and was not willing to repent and align with the lordship of Christ. That at core was the issue here. This is pre-cross. And Jesus is clearly saying, follow me for who I am. Many will say, Lord, Lord, there's the issue. And he'll say, I never knew you. I, I wasn't really your Lord. That's what he said back in Matthew 7. This is the core issue. A footnote, miracles, by the way, do not necessarily guarantee that faith will follow. Sometimes Christians seem to think that if we just saw more miracles, more people would believe. Well, the ministry of Christ proves that's not true. Nobody did more miracles than Jesus. And yet at the end of the day, what was the response of the nation? Largely rejection. In fact, Christ put the number one convincer as being the word. I love this about Jesus, and I love it about the word. Notice what he says in Luke chapter 16, verse 31. Of course, there's a context here, and this rich man who has died and gone to hell says, you know, have somebody miraculously uh, go back from the dead to my five brothers so that they can repent. And the word comes back to him. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that's the word of God. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. Well, you say, okay, we've got the Bible over here, and we've got a resurrection from the dead. Which one are you going with? Which one's going to be more convincing to bring people to repentance? I'm going with the resurrection from the dead. Uh, wrong. That's not the right answer. There's nothing more powerful and convincing than the Holy Spirit, the living God working through the living word to convict people and bring them to faith. The word is its own power. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word does that. The word is its own power because it has the convicting power of the Spirit behind it. But miracles did play a role. Yes, they did. They did provide powerful evidence for which the people were accountable. And that's the issue here. <clears throat> and the one reason the ministry of Christ was so powerful, and we've looked at this a lot of times, is Christ's ministry was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. So it was actually a fulfillment of the Word of God. And you put that combination together, it's especially powerful. So it wasn't Christ did just these things in a vacuum and said, hey, believe this in a vacuum. No, it was based on the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's what's really powerful about the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so he says, with all that background, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, in context, Jesus here singles out three cities in particular for a condemning rebuke. Those cities are Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, which Capernaum we'll get to in just a couple of verses. But all of these cities were located in the vicinity of the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, which is where most of Christ's miracles were performed. Uh, let me put a map up here so you can see. 
right up here, the uh, northern end here. Now, we don't even know where these cities were for sure. We know Capernaum was on the Sea of Galilee right up here somewhere. Uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida, we believe, not too far apart here. In the region of, of Galilee up there, in the, the north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, what was an announcement of coming judgment and doom? These verses remind us that the gospel accounts, by the way, are selective and not exhaustive. For example, Chorazin is mentioned only twice in the Bible, here in Matthew eleven twenty one, also in Luke 10, 13. And there is no record of any miracle in the gospels. There's no record of any miracles happening in Chorazin. And yet Jesus says, this is where most of his mighty miracles took place. It's one of the places where most of the activity happened. And yet we don't have a record of any miracles in the gospels happening there. Bethsaida only has record of two. Well, this shows us that all Jesus' healing ministry was extensive. The record is merely selective. And that's what John says at the end of his gospel, John chapter 21, 25. And there were also many other things Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Of course, John here is using hyperbole to make his point, but the fact is the gospels are merely selective in what they address. They present all the evidence we need for sure, but it's not the complete comprehensive record. It's just a selective record. Well, Jesus holds these cities in which most of his miracles were done most accountable because of the amount of light they were given. Jesus acts as if he is God here in that he claims to know both all things actual and all things possible, which only God can know that. Uh, This is omniscience, knowing all things, which is an attribute that belongs only to God. This once again serves as an indicator that Jesus is God, knowing what only God can ultimately know. Now, he claims here to know that if Tyre and Sidon had been privileged to have the same amount of evidence, that they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. They would have responded sooner, and they would have responded with repentance, giving the same opportunity, giving the same amount of evidence. Now, Tyre and Sidon were bad places. Uh, They were prominent coastal sister cities on the Mediterranean in the region of Phoenicia in the Old Testament. And they were pagan, idolatrous cities, often denounced by the prophets, especially for their worship of Baal. By the way, Jezebel was from Sidon. So uh, note here uh, where these were here. Way up here. We're down here by the Sea of Galilee where Jesus' ministry, most of his mighty miracles were done here. These were cities along the Mediterranean coast up, up further north up here. And again, they're twin cities often uh, spoken of together in the Old Testament, denounced by the prophets, uh, very similar in nature in terms of their religious uh, idolatry. Well, the wearing of sackcloth and ashes was a common Eastern way of demonstrating grief and brokenness, in this case, repentance. Sackcloth was rough fabric commonly made from short hairs of, of, of camels and worn next to the skin, The sackcloth was very uncomfortable and was worn to express inward pain. Verse 22, Jesus continues, 
But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. As wicked, as pagan, as idolatrous as Tyre and Sidon were, yet in the eyes of God, their sin was less offensive than that of Chorazin and Bethsaida. As offensive as gross sin is, there is nothing more offensive than the rejection of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is at the top of the list. Condemnation is ultimately for not believing on the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the first and foremost reason why people go to hell. 1 John 5.10, He who believes in the Son of God has a witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, which is an extremely offensive thing. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. This is the issue. God says, this is the record, this is the testimony that I'm giving of my Son. Now, are you going to believe it or not? And the more light a person has concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more accountable they are. And that is the great issue, my friends, right here. These people had firsthand light on an unparalleled level. God himself came to earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, personally doing miracles, undeniable before them on a scale unprecedented in the history of the world. They saw the power of God on display firsthand in and through the person of Christ. And that is a lot for which to account. In Luke 12, 48, Jesus says, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. That's the principle here. The greater the light given, the greater level of accountability. And truly the light was shining very brightly through both the ministry of John the Baptist and then especially followed up by the ministry of Jesus Christ. There was <clears throat> no excuse. Now, in context, most commentators agree that the woe of Christ here signifies coming physical judgment. Not just that, but it includes that. Today, when tour guides take you to these suggested sites, as I've been there, uh, when they show you these cities or where they think these cities were, here is what you find. Beautiful. You just don't want to miss this. Beautiful sites, not so much. Uh, we find desolation, destruction. But beyond the coming physical judgment, the text looks forward to a coming day of judgment. When the condemnation of, the, of these Jewish cities will suffer a worse fate than that of the wicked pagan Gentiles. Now, this is clearly a future day of judgment because in verse 24, we're not there yet, but when we get there, we will find that the judgment of Sodom is still looked on as being future. Now, at this point, when Jesus said this, Sodom had been wiped off the earth for about 2,000 years, and yet he speaks of a future day of judgment in which it will be more tolerable for Sodom. So this looks forward to uh, the final Unbelievers' judgment before the great white throne of God, spoken of in Revelation 20 and so forth. We note a couple of other things here. First, God does not owe anyone anything. 
He does not owe anyone a certain amount of revelation. You say, well, fairness would be, okay, everybody gets the same opportunity here as had by, you know, these cities where Jesus did all of his miracles. Eh, no, he does not owe anyone a certain amount of revelation. Otherwise, there would be injustice in the withholding of it. But that is not the case. Second, there are degrees of eternal punishment corresponding to the opportunities given. The greater the opportunity, the greater the judgment for not responding. God measures sin by the light in a person, a city, or a nation that has been given. William MacDonald makes a good summary statement here. There will be degrees of punishment in hell just as there will be degrees of reward in heaven. The single sin that consigns men to hell is refusal to submit to Jesus Christ. But the depth of suffering in hell is conditional on the privileges spurned and the sins indulged. Verse 23. Now Christ dresses a Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. This is an amazing statement. You understand Capernaum was the adopted hometown of Jesus where he put his ministry base of operations after he was rejected in his boyhood hometown of Nazareth. Thus, Capernaum had a great amount of privileged light. This was his his Galilean base of, of operations. Now, Galilee, where Capernaum was situated, was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And here's what the scripture prophetically has to say about it back in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 9, 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun, the land of Nephtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. That's what we're talking about, Galilee of the Gentiles. There was a lot of Gentile population that had seeped into uh, this region. Although, you know, it was still Jewish, but it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And it says there, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Great light here in in this region of the Gentiles, Galilee of the Gentiles. This was the light of the Messiah. And no one in Galilee saw this light more brightly than Capernaum the hometown base of Jesus. Many great miracles were performed there as recorded in the Gospels. So these other little cities, not so much. Maybe almost were suburbs of Capernaum. Capernaum gets the the really heavy statement here. And notice what he says there in verse 23. You, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven. You know what? Capernaum had a a pride problem. A pride problem. They're, They're exalted up to heaven. And they were too proud to repent. And there's nothing worse than religious pride that sees yourself as, well, I'm I'm just a little better. I'm a cut above. Uh, No, 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 no. Jesus says there's a problem here. And right here, it's a pride problem, which is a common problem. Pride gets in the way of repentance. Repentance and pride are mutually exclusive. True repentance involves humbling yourself before the truth of God. Jesus said, Though they were exalted to heaven in their own estimation, yet they would be brought down to Hades. Hades is the realm of the dead. 
corresponding to the Hebrew word Sheol. Hades is the Greek word. Sheol is the, is the, is the Hebrew word in the Old Testament. They're parallel. And when referring to the lost, it refers to the realm of the damned. Many believe that the language here alludes to Isaiah 14 uh, and the fall of Satan from heaven because of his exalted pride. We read there, uh, Isaiah 14, 14, and 15. I, this is, the, you know, in the context, there's five I wills of Satan. We pick up just a, a, a few here where the devil's behind what's happening here. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Satan was putting himself up, exalting himself in his own mind. And God says, you're going down, down to the lowest depths of the pit. Well, Capernaum had a devil-like ego. But coming to Christ requires an attitude of being humbled. Capernaum's exalted ego was going to be brought down to the realm of the damned in Hades. And then Jesus said, If the mighty works which were done in you, that is Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, now you just got to understand, (laughs) for pious Jews, so full of religious pride especially exalting himself over Gentiles, let alone the most filthy Gentiles in the history of the world as seen in Sodom. For these pious Jews, this was the ultimate insult. I I mean, we just can't even imagine. After all, you understand the Jews consider themselves the favored people, uniquely blessed and the special people of God. And they considered Sodom the worst of the worst in terms of the depths of degradation. What they failed to realize is that the fuller revelation given in the personalized ministry of the Messiah made them even more culpable than the great sinners in Sodom. That's really saying something. It's really saying something quite powerful. Look at what the record says about these sinners in Sodom. Genesis 13, 13. This is what God says, not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to pile on them, but I mean, the scriptures pile on enough. Genesis 13, 13. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And Genesis 18, 20. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave. The record of scripture is that Sodom was about as bad as you can get. It was proverbial for perverse wickedness. And it's infamous in history. It became typical for extreme evil and judgment. When God judged Sodom, it was wiped off the face of the earth. To such an extreme that for years people have wondered exactly where it was located. And God intends for the judgment of Sodom to be a lasting warning and a lesson for the entire world. Look at what the New Testament says. This is the Old Testament uh, reference in Genesis in terms of how bad they were. And then the judgment that God brought upon them. We have uh, these statements, 2 Peter 2.6. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example an example to those who afterward should live ungodly. God intends this to be a lasting example. And then in Jude, verse 7, 
As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, given, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. I think in our day we really need to come back to what does God really think about this? Has he changed his say, Well, the God of the New Testament is a different God than the God of the Old Testament. He's much more gracious. Than the, really? It doesn't seem to me that God has changed his mind at all here. Thus, Sodom is set forth as an enduring example of the destructive judgment of God that is beyond remedy. Not only were they suddenly destroyed physically, but also are set forth as an example of those who suffer the vengeance of eternal hellfire. That's sobering. But here's the point in our text this morning. As bad as the wickedness of Sodom was... Yet before God, the wickedness of rejecting Christ's personal ministry by those who saw it up close and personal is shown to be even worse. This was an even greater sin against the Lord. The condemnation here is not for great moral degradation, not for great immorality, not for violence and vice, but simply for not accepting the great revelation given in the personal ministry of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says, Curiously, there is no record that the people of that city ever mocked or ridiculed Jesus, ran him out of town, or threatened his life. Yet the sin of that city, indifference to Christ, was worse than Sodom's gross wickedness. That is saying something. Verse 24, But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. It's going to be better on judgment day for Sodom than for you guys. Now, for any Jew, again, with any sense of spirituality at all, this had to be shocking. More tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for God's chosen people, us, the Jews? That's shocking. And it just goes to show you the value that God puts on the truth of his son. And what offends him the most is the rejection of Jesus, the Messiah. This, my friends, is the greatest sin of all. And don't think that just because we don't live in the time of Christ's earthly ministry, that we are somehow less accountable for the sin of indifference to the truth of Christ. You see... God had a record of Christ's life and ministry written down under inspiration for which we are totally accountable as we are made aware of it. There's no getting around it. Those who have access to this great light have great accountability. You can't say, well, I kind of, you know, I kind of came in contact with the truth of Christ, but I kind of quietly walked away, no harm. (laughs) No, no, no. You come in contact with the truth of Christ, you're responsible for it. John Phillips says, It behooves us to remember that our nation has been given more light than that which was given to Capernaum. We live on this side of the cross. We have a completed New Testament. The Holy Spirit has come. Pentecost has come. The church has been born. In Capernaum's day, the Lord's mighty works were largely in the sphere of the physical. But in our land, spiritual miracles take place every day. Bible Knowledge Commentary All three Galilean cities, in spite of their greater light, rejected the Messiah and today are in ruins. 
awaiting the judgment day that is yet to come in which it will be go better for Sodom than for them. Now let's make some application. Hebrews chapter 10 presents a very comparable sin that can be committed today by those who have come to know the knowledge of the truth but refuse to accept it. That phrase, the knowledge of the truth, is code for the gospel in the New Testament. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 10, we have this warning. And it's a sober warning. And he's warning Jews that seem to, they made the profession, but now he's concerned, have they stopped short of true saving faith? And he's warning them. Hebrews 10, 26, for if we sin willfully, this is willful rejection. If we sin willfully, After we have received the knowledge of the truth, gospel truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Don't think you can go running back to Judaism and get back into the sacrificial system and say, well, that's going to be good enough and I'll be accepted on that basis. No, 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 no. The truth of Jesus Christ ends all the sacrifices. All finds culmination and fulfillment in him. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No one else. And so he continues on a few verses later of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Well, he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, the person of Jesus Christ, who he is as the Son of God, meaning God, a very God, the very nature of God. Counted the blood of the covenant. You know, a new covenant was inaugurated by the precious blood of Jesus, by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. To willfully reject the knowledge of the truth is a most serious thing. It was in Jesus' day, and it still is today. We can talk all day about the grievous sins of our society, such as adultery, abortion, and homosexuality, and those are serious sins. But you want to know what's even more offensive to God? That is being a nice, moral, or religious person that in reality is indifferent to the truth of Jesus Christ. That's even more offensive to God. Great light brings with it great accountability. There were many small towns and villages in Galilee during the time of Christ, but it is believed that there were really four prominent cities in Galilee, namely Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Tiberias. Now, interestingly, Jesus pronounced woe against the first three, but not the city of Tiberias. William MacDonald again says, What has been the result? The destruction of Chorazin and Bethsaida is so complete that their exact sites are unknown. The location of Capernaum is not positive. Tiberias still stands. This remarkable fulfillment of prophecy is one more evidence of the Savior's omniscience and the Bible's inspiration. When we were in Israel, one of my favorite cities was Tiberias. In fact, I think I mentioned to my wife, I wouldn't mind moving to Israel and living here. (laughs) I love Tiberias. I love Jerusalem too. In fact, there wasn't much in Israel I didn't like, but, uh, but I love Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. I still remember the seagulls flying over the sea in the warm, refreshing air, It's a beautiful sight looking over the Sea of Galilee. You can see it there on the map. Here here it is. We're talking about this area up here where Jesus' mighty miracles, most of them were performed. Tiberius down the the way. And, uh, you know, here's just a a picture 
But what, what a lesson we have in our text here this morning. Great privilege, great light, great revelation result in great accountability. And this is proven true even in history as these cities were destroyed. The woe of Christ always proves true. Proves true in time and it will certainly prove true in eternity at the great white throne judgment. You really don't want to go to hell from Southview Bible Church because to the best of our ability, we are continually championing the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ day in and day out. It might be good to go to a liberal church who never preaches the truth if you're on your way to hell. If you sit here and you listen to it but refuse to really accept it, woe be to you on judgment day. You're going to give an account for the truth that has gone forth in this pulpit. The worst place to go to hell from is from the position of having known the truth and yet being unresponsive to it. Note the emphasis that we have seen in our text here this morning. More light, more accountability. Verse 20, mighty works, yet they did not repent. Mighty works, verse 21. Mighty works, verse 23. What's the the consequence of rejecting it? It will be more tolerable for these pagan cities than for those religious people who reject it. More tolerable, more tolerable. Well, if you know the truth, you are accountable for it. And the more truth you know, the more accountable you are. God demands a proper response, a saving faith response that involves true repentance. God demands a heart response that receives Christ for who he is as the Son of God, for who he is as the Savior. My only question, and I finish with this, is, What is your response? What is your response? If you want to talk further about this, I'm always available. The elders are available too. But that's the ultimate issue. Here's the truth. What's your response to it? Stand and have our closing song.